0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Marcus Krim, Senior R&D Manager of Molecular Diagnostics and Microbiology at IDEX, a reference laboratory and consulting service for veterinarians and other animal health professionals. Hi, Dr. Krim. Thank you so much for being on Aquadox.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate you reaching out. I'm thankful for the opportunity. Looking forward to our conversation.
0: I'm really looking forward to our conversation too. So to start out, can you just give our listeners a brief overview of what your role is at IDEX?
1: Yeah, you bet. So I wear a few different hats, but what I want to talk about today is that I provide scientific oversight for the aquatics diagnostics program at IDEX. And that's mostly diagnostic testing for zebrafish, but also for a range of other species that are used in biomedical research. So my customers actually are other veterinarians that work for institutions like academic institutions, the government, nonprofit research institutions, pharmaceutical companies, and biotech companies.
0: Can you tell us why the work you do consulting for laboratories is so important?
1: Basically, these different institutions like teaching hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, academic institutions, they maintain large colonies of fish for biomedical research. And they are interested in very specific questions, medical questions that they want to answer using these fish. But fish, just like every other species, they have their own naturally occurring viruses, their own bacterial infections, their own cancers, everything that you would expect from a vertebrate animal from a healthcare perspective. And so you can can imagine if you're doing research in a very specific medical question, but then there's an outbreak of some naturally occurring infection in your colony that that could really mess up the data a little bit or make it more difficult to interpret. So my role, I consult on behalf of IDEX with veterinarians that are doing the clinical work in these large colonies of aquatic animals, and I help them manage the health of the whole population. And that includes sometimes individual fish, but a lot of it looks more like what you would think of as herd health. It can incorporate everything from importing fish lines as embryos from other institutions, quarantine practices. I help them set up a program often for routine surveillance, like maybe quarterly, they collect certain sample types that give them slightly different information about the health status of a particular system or colony of fish. And then I can help them develop reports that they use to communicate with the scientists and also with other institutions that maybe they're sharing lines of zebrafish with.
0: Wow. That's that's really cool. And it seems like it's a lot of the behind the scenes work that you don't always think about in veterinary care.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit different part of veterinary medicine. It's a little bit different part of aquatic animal medicine. There's also a lot of differences between what I do and veterinarians that are doing diagnostics for commercial aquaculture or working with ornamental fish. So it's an interesting role and I, I enjoy it quite a bit.
0: So you mentioned differences between aquaculture, laboratory and ornamental fish. Can you say a bit more about the differences between fish farming and lab fish management?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily always totally surprising. I think it's just that people don't think about it, but there are a number of differences. So in commercial aquaculture, you generally don't have the level of control over the environment and over biosecurity that you have in a laboratory situation. So if you think about net pin aquaculture, for example, you've basically got a large number of fish in the open ocean, whether you have schools of wild fish that can approach the net pin. So there's biosecurity concern there. Or if you're thinking about even pond aquaculture of catfish in the American South. You have outdoor ponds that are stocked with catfish, but you don't have perfect control over things like amphibians, reptiles, snails, wading birds, all of those things that can transfer water and organisms from pond to pond. So the difference in the laboratory is I'll use zebrafish as an example. With zebrafish, you may have up to 300,000 zebrafish in a single room, but all of those fish are going to be in much smaller tanks. And those tanks are all part of a recirculating aquaculture system. In many cases, you're starting with reverse osmosis water that can be UV disinfected and you have automated dosing to maintain all of the salt and mineral levels that you need in the system. All of those tanks are plumbed in parallel. So you're dramatically reducing the ability of pathogens to transmit. So if you have all the fish in there together, then you almost have an equal probability of any fish infecting any other fish. But in this sort of recirculating system, you've limited transmission so that fish are most likely to transmit within their own tank, but it's much more difficult for a pathogen to jump from one tank to another tank. That plays a big role in how you think about health management and diagnostics. Another key difference between a commercial aquaculture approach to diagnostics versus in a laboratory environment is we place a very different level of significance on subclinical infections. So, if you think about the endpoints for a commercial aquaculture situation of production, you're basically starting with the most robust animal that you can start with, and you're feeding them as much as you reasonably can to get them to a harvest weight in the shortest time possible. And then you're harvesting them essentially as young adults. So in a research situation, they're not, first of all, the most robust fish that you can start with. There are lines that are quite robust, but on the other hand, a lot of the work that people are doing is looking at diseases, right? So they're looking at things like genetic diseases. And when you're looking at a genetic disease, you're basically going to be using either naturally occurring mutant or genetically modified zero fish that sort of replicate some aspect of that phenotype. So you're basically starting with fish that are not as robust as an outbred fish. Also in biomedical research, we're using sometimes fish that are immunocompromised or immunodeficient. So they do not have all the parts maybe to their immune system or not all the parts are functional, which makes them a lot more susceptible to certain types of infections. And we're not growing them to a weight that we can harvest. We're basically taking them to the end point of the experiment. And subclinical infections, even if you don't actually see clinical disease, in other words, there's no clinical signs. The fish is not lethargic. It doesn't stop eating. It's not losing weight. It doesn't exhibit any of the clinical signs that you associate with disease. There are changes when you you have a subclinical infection, then it alters things about your physiology, it alters things about your immune function. And as a result of that, the subclinical infections can have a confounding effect on medical research even if you don't actually observe clinical disease as a veterinarian.
0: That's a really interesting point. Now, I want to pivot to talk about some of the cool studies with zebrafish. Can you start by explaining why zebrafish make such good lab
1: animals? Yeah, you bet. So most of the time when people think about laboratory animals, they think about rodents, for example. They think about mice, rats, and guinea pigs. Zebrafish have a lot of advantages over those mammalian model organisms. So for example, zebrafish exhibit really high fecundity. In other words, they produce lots and lots of eggs. And they produce the eggs in a fairly predictable way. So, for example, the major spawning event usually happens right after the lights come on in the morning. And so if you have a group of zebrafish, by managing their light cycle, you can create a large number of time-synchronized embryos at whatever time of day that you want. That's super cool. Yeah, it, it is super cool. Those embryos are optically transparent. The larvae are transparent for the first few days. There are also genetic lines like double mutant lines that are transparent all the way into adulthood. So if you have a fish that's transparent, then that gives you a lot of options in terms of how to collect data. And one of the major tools that zebrafish scientists use are fluorescent proteins. So basically you can insert the genetic information that allows a zebrafish to make a fluorescent protein so that you can see fluorescence in different colors for different cell types or different tissues that you want to label. So you're probably familiar with glowfish that are in the pet trade. This is essentially what this is, except in the case of glowfish, they're selling an ornamental fish where they basically want the entire fish to fluoresce. In zebrafish research, they don't want the entire fish to fluoresce. They want some very specific parts of the fish to fluoresce. For example, certain types of immune cells. If there are zebrafish lines that have neutrophils that fluoresce green. There are various lines that have different color fluorescence for neurons for different cells that make up the vascular system for all different kinds of cell types. And you can even have multiple cell types that you're monitoring. They just fluoresce in different colors. So you can observe that fluorescence in an automated way. For example, you can basically use fancy cameras and time-lapse photography to capture the movement and migration of individual cell types through the entire process of development. So you can go from a fertilized egg all the way to a fully functional vertebrate animal resolving the part that you're looking at at cellular level. So it's an incredibly powerful tool. There's basically no way to do that in mice. First of all, you can't even see the embryo develop in a mouse, right? And so those are some of the advantages of using zebrafish over other models. They're a vertebrate. So they're a lot more similar to humans than say a nematode, but you're able to approach them experimentally in a way that you cannot use um, rodents.
0: Wow. This is probably one of the coolest things I've learned about in recent weeks. So I have so many questions. The first, we were chatting offline before, and you were saying that zebrafish have actually been used recently in translational studies. So studies where you're studying zebrafish and pertaining to humans, and it's actually about cancer research and even personalized chemotherapy. So I'd love if you could touch upon that for our listeners.
1: Yeah, that's right. So zebrafish have been used in cancer research for a while. And all of the advantages of zebrafish that we've talked about play into why they are useful as a model organism for cancer research. There is a lot of movement in that area, a lot of innovation. And, and one of those is, you know, how could zebrafish model be applied to personalized medicine? One of the problems that clinicians face when they're treating cancer is that we are able to divide cancer into different categories of cancer, and then we're able to subdivide those categories. You know, if you think about, for example, lymphoma, then they classify, there's lots of different kinds of lymphoma, and they classify that. And then ultimately, they recommend a treatment regimen that might include a variety of things like surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. But the problem is that even within those subcategories, there is variability in individual tumors and how they respond to those different protocols. And so you're essentially, as a clinician, making recommendations based on the bucket of people that have a cancer most similar to yours, on average, this is what they respond to the best. But it doesn't necessarily answer the question of whether an individual patient will respond to that particular therapeutic protocol. The question of how can we use zebrafish in personalized medicine is we can use an approach called the patient-derived xenograft. It's a commonly abbreviated PDX. And basically what that means is you can take a piece of a tumor from a patient that has cancer, and then you can support the growth of that tumor in an animal model and see how it responds to different therapies. So this has been done for quite some time in mice. However, in mice, it is kind of a slow process. It's months long process. So the opportunity to use zebrafish embryos or zebrafish larvae to support the growth of human cancer cells and and treat them simultaneously with a number of different protocols and to be able to do replicates simultaneously because of the scalability of the model and because of the ability to do automated data collection, you can take an extremely expensive experiment that takes months to do and turn it into a much less ex- expensive experiment that can be accomplished in, for example, maybe a couple of weeks. So a couple of weeks is a meaningful timeframe in which to give feedback to a clinician who's treating a patient, right? Right. So certainly for more aggressive cancers, you, you want to act as quickly as possible. So the quicker that you can get to an answer on which type of therapeutic intervention is going to be effective for a particular patient's tumor, then the better, the better the outcome will be.
0: Wow. I mean, it's incredible how far science has come of late, especially with with respect to cancer research. I'm curious though, because people are mammals, zebrafish are fish. So how are there not complications between such different species?
1: That's a great question. So although they are not mammals, they're more similar to mammals than what most people might think. Okay. So most of the genes that mammals have, there are very similar genes, or a different version of the same gene in zebrafish. Basically, zebrafish have many of the same tissues that we have, and there are a lot of similarities in the tumor microenvironment. And using zebrafish, is much better than taking tumor cells and growing them in vitro, in glass, in, in cell culture, and trying these chemotherapeutic protocols. Because basically, once you've taken the tumor out of the environment of the body and put them in an artificial environment and passaged tumor cell lines, there's considerable change that happens in the makeup of the tumor. Because basically, once you start propagating tumor cells and cell culture, you're subjecting them to selective pressures right? Pretty substantial selective pressures. And there are going to be selective pressures when you put inoculated zebrafish larva with the tumor as well, but it's not as stark as moving to in vitro.
0: So it sounds to me like this research is still in the initial phases and it's been used just within the last couple of years. Where do you see it going in, let's say the next five to 10 years?
1: Well, it's very difficult to predict timelines for research. So while there's enormous promise for using zebrafish in patient-derived xenograft experiments, there are some challenges, right? For example, tumors in humans grow at human core body temperature, and zebrafish are usually maintained at a lower temperature than that. Zebrafish are ectothermic and poikilothermic. But zebrafish are also urethermic, which means that uh, zebrafish have a really wide temperature range tolerance. And there is still work being done to try to figure out what is the optimal temperature to maintain zebrafish large. Where you have minimal effect on the physiology of the zebrafish and simultaneously a minimal effect on the pathophysiology of the tumor. You know, I don't, I can't predict the timeline from when this will go to experimental to being available as like a commercial service to cancer patients, but I definitely see that they've made a lot of progress in that area.
0: Well, it's super cool. And it'll have to be something that I know I'll be following. And hopefully some of you that are listening will follow as well, because that's the next step of medicine. And it's just it's super cool to see what what else is out there. What's next? So before we were talking a little bit about your role at IDEX, I'm curious what type of samples you receive.
1: Yeah, we receive actually a lot of different sample types. So when we're talking about colony health monitoring and zebrafish, we are interested in a comprehensive approach. And so in order to achieve that, we use several different diagnostic platforms. So that would include uh, traditional platforms like histopathology.
0: So when you say histopathology, that means you're studying cell samples, correct?
1: Yeah. So for histopathology, people are usually going to submit tissues. So sometimes that could be whole fish. In fact, with zebrafish, that's typically whole fish. Often with larger species, the clinical veterinarian or the institutional veterinarian may do a necropsy, and collect specific tissues that they want pathologists to interpret and then they would basically fix those tissues in a formalin-based fixative and ship them to our laboratory where they would be processed and made into glass slides and then those glass slides would be scanned into a giant digital image. And then be reviewed by a pathologist and they would write a report about the disease processes that they observe. So histopathology provides you with a lot of information and not only can act as a direct test to identify a pathogen that you see, but it's an indirect test where you can see basically the, the tissue response or evidence that a pathogen was there. Histopathology allows you to see what kind of impact an infection is having on the fish. You can see changes to the the tissue architecture. You can see the level of inflammation in a particular fish.
0: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And so you study the histopathology, but you also do some microbiology and PCR as well, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So for microbiology, we have a microbiology lab that you would imagine is similar to a diagnostic microbiology lab in a human hospital or for example, a companion animal reference laboratory. One of the differences is that because we also have experience and the need to culture and identify aquatic organisms, we have the ability to work with a wide array of sample types. So sometimes that is going to be things like infected tissues or potentially infected tissues. Sometimes that's going to be swabs. From a fish, sometimes that's going to be microbiology of biofilms or water samples. So pretty diverse. In traditional microbiology laboratories, they often rely on biochemical tests or phenotyping tests to identify bacteria to the species level. That can be pretty problematic with some groups of aquatic bacteria, just because there are a limited number of phenotypic tests and biochemical tests available. And we don't know very much about the variability within the species for a lot of aquatic organisms. So we use MALDI-TOF mass spectrometry. And basically the way that that works is once we isolate a bacterium in pure culture, we take a piece of that or, uh, or extract the proteins from it. And we put that onto a stainless steel target that goes into a machine where we draw a vacuum and shoot it with a laser and break it apart into pieces of protein that fly through space to a detector. And we measure the time of flight to make a protein fingerprint. That protein fingerprint is then compared to databases that we maintain of different species of uh, bacteria and fungi and oomycetes and it's very specific and we can get really high level resolution identification using that technique and the limitation basically is just the the size and the depth of your database and so we're constantly adding new aquatic organisms to the database so that we can improve our ability to identify those organisms
0: I wish you had been there when I was taking organic chemistry because the description I got of mass spec then was so confusing and it didn't make sense. But what you just explained with like there's some lasers and then there's a fingerprint and then you identify the species, it was like, oh, I understand that. So thank you for explaining it very well.
1: You bet. You <laughs> bet. And yeah, so uh, microbiology is really useful because you can look at a lot of different sample types. If the organism is one that can be grown in the laboratory quickly, uh, using MALDI-TOF mass spectrometry to ID it is really fast. So that's a huge advantage. There's also the opportunity to phenotype organisms or, or to do things like antibiotic sensitivity testing. The disadvantages of microbiology is that there are a lot of organisms that are slow growing. And so turnaround time becomes an issue. So, And the sensitivity is variable depending on what you're trying to culture. So for example, Mycobacterium homophilum is a a species of mycobacteria that infects some species of fish, including zebrafish, the culture sensitivity for that organism is really low. And when you do culture it, the timeline is very long. So you'd be waiting one to two months to get pinpoint colonies, which that's too long, right? Nobody wants to diagnose um, mycobacterium haemophilum using culture.
0: Yeah, no, too long. So sensitivity means that you can trust your negatives, right? So when you're saying that there's low sensitivity, it means might have more false negatives.
1: Yes. Yep. You bet. You've got it right. Yeah. So sensitivity means that if it's there, you will find it right? If you have a really sensitive assay, then you can be confident that it's there that you'll find it. If you have an insensitive assay, that might mean that it's there, but you can't detect it for some reason. And if you have poor sensitivity, like um, culture of mycobacterium homophilum has poor sensitivity, then you can't really be confident in a negative result. So if you grow it, it's positive, right? You're comfortable with that. But if you don't grow it, you're not sure whether it's not there or it's because culture is insensitive for that agent. Gotcha. Another platform that we employ really widely in lab animal medicine and in diagnostics for zebrafish and other aquatic species is real-time PCR. So PCR comes in different flavors, but basically it's a molecular reaction where you have lots and lots of cycles using small pieces of DNA called primers to make many, many copies of a target genetic sequence. And when we're using it diagnostically, that target genetic sequence is typically a sequence in the pathogen. So real-time PCR has advantages over histopathology and microbiology because it's extremely sensitive. So our diagnostic real-time PCR assays are validated to detect one to 10 template copies per reaction. So if, if an organism has one copy of the target sequence in their genome, then you're talking about detecting less than 10 organisms per reaction. If the, if the assay is designed to a gene that's present in multiple copies, it's going to be even fewer organisms than that. So real-time PCR has another advantage in that you can really test a wide array of sample types. So this would include things like not only whole zebrafish, zebrafish tissues, but swabs of zebrafish, swabs of the environment, embryos, feces. And because you're detecting the sequence of the pathogen, you can use the same assay to detect that pathogen in different host species. So for example, we have panels of real-time PCR assays that we developed for zebrafish. But there are lots of other small fish species that are used in biomedical research. And a number of the common pathogens of zebrafish have fairly broad host ranges. And so as a result of that, you can use those assays not only for zebrafish, but for other species as well.
0: Hmm, Wow. That's so cool. Before I let you go, I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit on your perspective of why you chose this specific path in aquatics. Because as we mentioned before, a lot of veterinarians are very hands on with the animals or in a clinical setting. And you're demonstrating that you can still be highly involved in aquatics, but you're in a more diagnostic setting.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. My first couple of comments that come to mind are that I think it's really valuable to get experience doing different things because. You'll do things in veterinary medicine that you like, but if you don't have a broad experience, you won't find necessarily those things that you like doing even more. The second piece is that both aquatic animal medicine and laboratory animal medicine are some of the areas of veterinary medicine that are less talked about. So if you're gonna get that experience, you're probably gonna have to um, take some initiative and you're gonna have to drive that yourself. So there are opportunities to get training As a veterinary student, I went to different universities. I went to vet school at Texas A&M. They had an alternative track program where basically you convince a faculty member to be your champion and you lay out a case why you can't get everything that you need for your career interest at the veterinary school that you're at. And so I took that approach. And I ended up, you know, spending one month with the laboratory animal veterinarians that work at Texas A&M, basically shadowing them, understanding what they do, got to see all of the different vivaria that house different species of animals. I got to see how they house their aquatic species and what they're doing. I got to spend a month at UC Davis, so I got to work with different species there and see how they approached it. I also spent a month at the University of Michigan Medical School, and I spent a month at the University of Missouri, which has also has a training program in laboratory animal medicine. And at the time, the laboratory that I currently work in, which is now part of IDEX, was actually part of the University of Missouri. I, I have always had a, had an interest in aquatic animals. You know, I kept aquariums as a kid. I have always been interested also in amphibians and reptiles. When I graduated undergrad, I was trying to decide between being an entomologist and being a herpetologist. I worked on a research project with American alligators at Texas A&M. And so it turns out actually that alligators are, have some challenges as a laboratory animal, just as a consideration. Very different than zebrafish.
0: Yeah. The teeth are a little bigger.
1: <laughs> well, they take up, they take up a lot of space and they eat a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's very different. But anyway, uh, while I was doing research in a in a comparative physiology laboratory. In a project involving alligators, I became acquainted with laboratory animal veterinarians. And it sort of really opened my eyes as a graduate student to how broad veterinary medicine really is. I, I guess in my mind, I just thought about, you know, small animal practice is, is was really my conception of veterinary medicine at the time. But, you know, the cool thing was that the lab animal veterinarians valued my input because I knew more about alligators than maybe they had learned in vet school or whatever. And so, but they knew how to manage clinical cases and practice medicine and how to organize all those things. So I I learned a lot from them, working closely with them. And actually that led to my going to veterinary school at Texas A&M was my experience with laboratory animal vets.
0: That's such a great story. Well, thank you so much for being on Aquadocs.
1: Yeah, no, it was fun. Thankful for the opportunity, really. I I think what you're doing is a good thing.
0: And before we go, on a more serious note, I want to acknowledge that this has been a really hard week for people in the veterinary community. Vets have one of the highest suicide rates of any profession, and this week we lost three incredible veterinarians. We mourn those we've lost, but we remember them by continuing to shed light on this problem. If you or anyone you know is struggling with suicidal ideation, I encourage you to call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or look into the resources provided by Not One More Bet. Thank you to Dr. Marcus Krim for being on the show this week, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra minute, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.